We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Drashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by fan favorite and former tech executive Christopher Bedford, <laughs> who is the executive editor over at the Common Sense Society. Chris, welcome. Uh, and who came here at great risk to himself. A great risk. Multiple rotor agents that I actually... Didn't start. Two and one. I don't think. You did start it. There was room for both of us. Chris picked me up on the way to the office because I thought it was going to be raining, so I stupidly accepted a ride in his very sketchy Land Rover. Sketchy? He, he, that no. is a chosen vehicle of the Bolivian Salt Plains, the Australian <laughs> Outback, and the Afghan Taliban. Do you remember when it, it broke down while we were making that Kamala Harris video? That was the Range Rover. Oh, that was. Okay. That is that is communist engineering, or communist electrical work, but a beautiful truck. Yeah. Well, he we could litigate this now but we probably shouldn't there were two parking spots and both the car in front of chris and chris's car were trying to squeeze into the two parking spots chris instead of letting the first guy take his pick zoomed into the back spot there was plenty of room for the other guy to yeah park. he just didn't know how to parallel park or use his signals so he, he's backing up toward me and he's got this like little ukrainian like twitter bird on the back of his car so i'm like all right this guy's a total wuss but it turns out he's an actual <laughs> he's ukrainian he's like the opposite of a wuss like oh okay yeah Boom. and he's yelling at me dropping f-bombs <laughs> Talking about my mom, who's a wonderful woman. <laughs> All is well that ends well. Chris's car is safe from getting Didn't key my car. I, yeah, he sprinted across I, the road. I to definitely know. watched because yeah. he came back around the corner. Yeah. And you never know, you know, don't mess with Ukrainians. That's right. That's a good, the lesson of the last <laughs> year, serious. in fact. Uh, but Chris, we're actually on a more serious note here to talk about a really beautiful essay you wrote for the New Criterion's March edition. It's called A True Part of the Story on the Confederate Monument at Arlington National Cemetery. Now, we have published a couple of pieces at the Federalist, or maybe even just one, on the Confederate monument at Arlington National Cemetery. But it's a story I don't think a lot of people are familiar with that has new salience right now for a number of reasons you're going to explain. Uh, but why should people know the story of the statue? Well, we get it, the thank you first, but because it's different from the other statue fights. Now, I think a lot of the iconoclasm that we saw in 2020 was awful. It was uh, people bringing very simple solutions to a very complicated issue. Um, and obviously, if you look at Richmond today, if you look at a lot of these places today, uh, that's all they had. <laughs> the black community in those cities is not at all better. The city is just uglier uh, and, and, and vandalized for it. But this is different. This is not a monument. Uh, this is a memorial. Mm. This is a it's a, a memorial to reconciliation. It's a memorial to the dead. And it's uh, and it's. Uh, not part of the rash of monuments that went up in the 50th or 100th anniversary of the uh, Confederacy as part of some kind of either intimidation campaign or some kind of glorification of the lost cause. It is a symbol of the fixing, the, the coming back together of the relationship between the North and the South. which still had a long way to go. The country had a long way to go when it went up. Uh, but... The story here, the, the architect was Moses Jacob Ezekiel, who himself is a complicated man. He is a, he, he was a Confederate veteran. This is the most biblical name I've ever heard. Isn't that? Like, it's pretty, pretty Moses awesome. Moses Jacob Ezekiel. <laughs> he was the first uh, Jewish uh, student at the Virginia Military Academy, mm. uh, which famously was right next to a battle. 
uh, when the North came down through Virginia. And so it's the only time in American history where an entire class of students have fought together as a unit because mm-hmm. the, they needed all the troops that they could muster. Uh, so Moses uh, fought alongside his classmate and his best friend who was killed that day at the Battle of Newmarket or, or shot that day and, and was nursed by Moses over the next three days until he passed away. He lost his shoes in the mud. Um, and left the country after the war, moved over to Rome. So now we have a Jewish confederate who's moved to Catholic Rome to study art and mm-hmm. to learn from the masters. Um, this man hosted, ended up, at, he was knighted by kings and queens. He was so renowned for his sculpture. And why did, by the way, just quickly while we're here, why was he, uh, was he conscripted into the Confederate army? How did he end up fighting? No, he was, he was a, at VMI. Yeah, because he was at VMI okay. and the, the, the headmaster ordered it. But he went to VMI to fight for the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. He was a Confederate through mm-hmm. and through, not just someone who was pulled up. Um, but at the same time, he ended up hosting the Union General Ulysses S. Grant mm-hmm. as his guest in Rome. So this is a man who had a lot of romantic attachments to his youth and to that cause. But by the time he was asked in his old age to to sculpt this monument, the country had changed a lot. The other's memorial. Uh, Most countries, when they fight a civil war, don't recover, Mm -hmm. really ever, or it takes a long time to recover. There are serious guerrilla military campaigns. There's hatred. And we had our share of difficulties, but the United States' recovery from the Civil War really started to kind of bond together in the late 1890s when we fought the Spanish-American War. And some of the veterans of the Civil War even ended up fighting with Union, former Confederate and former Union forces, the older ones, fighting under the same flag. And it helped heal a lot of the rifts. Up to that point, if you were a Confederate dead, buried, you could not be buried in Arlington Cemetery, of course. Um, it, was a, it was a federal cemetery. And the, federal, the Confederate dead who were interred in federal cemeteries in the North, were not allowed, their graves were not allowed to be kept. Mm-hmm. Even the family of the, of the deceased could not go there and put down some flowers and mow the grass. Feelings were, there was a lot of anger on both sides. I mean, 2% of the population was killed, uh, roughly. That's an incredible amount of people. And by the way, what's unique about the American recovery from our Civil War is that it's the first real experimentation in modern constitutional republicanism. So it's it's that the healing through, not a monarchy, not competing monarchies or anything like that, but it's healing from the Civil War through this constitutional republic, which really hasn't happened on that scale before. Yeah. And folks from Atlanta, veterans from Atlanta and the South had been going on around on goodwill tours trying to heal the country. Of course, there were still a lot of racial overtones. This country was far from perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, the president of the United States at that time went down to Atlanta and gave a speech uh, talking after the Spanish-American War saying, hey, you know, we need to, we've come back together. We fought under the same banner. We need to heal some of these wounds. And he got he at that point allowed the graves to be kept and allowed for a space at the back of Arlington Cemetery to lay some of the Confederate war dead who were around the Washington, D.C. area, prisoners and people who were killed uh, in combat. So they moved those graves to a back corner of Arlington Cemetery. And a few years later, I think six years later, the Daughters of the uh, Confederacy petitioned the president to put up a memorial at Arlington. Uh, It was approved. They, and again, this is, I talk about this in the essay. This is not a, a perfect time. There was not a single member of Daughters of the American Confederacy who could vote in the United States at that time. Um, we'd still be about 30 years from when uh, 
blacks, black American servicemen would be allowed to be interred in Arlington Cemetery. We were still coming along, but he built this memorial, uh, Moses, and it's beautiful. It's stunning. If you're ever there, it's worth going. It's, um, it's topped by a robed woman, and she's wearing a, uh, an olive branch around her head, a symbol of peace. She's, she's holding the laurel, a symbol of honor. And she's got her hand leaning back on the plowshare, mm. which is obviously a biblical uh, allusion to the Bible, uh, hammering the swords into plowshares. It's symbolic of peace. Um, beneath it, there's a circular frieze that's got Athena on the center, and there's around it scenes of the Old South. And this is one of the things that people find have a problem with, because it is it's a romanticized vision of the Old South. It includes a mammy holding up a baby for his mm -hmm. father, soldier father to kiss goodbye. There's a statue of a slave accompanying his master to war. And I mean, um, he was a romantic man. Mm -hmm. he, had, he held a romantic idea of the South in his mind um, uh, throughout his entire life. And that's what people are clinging to. But I'll let you ask me a question because I, I want to pull up right here the poem that he had inscribed or not, which was a from a Confederate chaplain. The poem is not for fame or reward, not for place or for rank, not lured by ambition or goaded by necessity, but in simple obedience to duty as they understood it. These men suffered all, sacrificed all, dared all, and died. Mm. In the great piece in American Conservative on this, the art critic K.H.B. Lee asks, well, who can find the wrong statement in that? Mm. This, this monument, this memorial is to the dead. The, the sculptor himself ended up being buried there. And it's to reconciliation between the American people. It's to peace that is at the center of it. And yes, it has a romanticized vision. But a lot of us have romanticized visions of false things, and especially in our youth. And it much more than a statue of Nathaniel Bedford Forrest with glowing red eyes outside of Nashville <laughs> or like something that was put up in the 60s to intimidate local black populations during desegregation. This is not like that. This is a beautiful funerary piece to a time where the country was coming back together. And for the military, which can be very ham-fisted and very pig-headed, to go back with their congressional authorization to remove Confederate aspects of military bases and try to rip this out and demolish this in Arlington without input, without, without really thinking through it, is uh, it's just a very simple-minded and awful thing to do to our history. There's, unlike a lot of these other monuments that maybe people say, well, why don't we add some context to this? This, this monument has all the, con this memorial has all the context you need. It's right there and it's surrounded by the dead and it's surrounded beyond that by the American federal dead who gave their lives to end slavery. I mean, it's, it's a living piece of a museum like, and, a, and, a, and a cemetery. So I, I went on too long there, but that's, that's why I shouldn't trust people. No, well, worth it. But you're essentially arguing there is an important distinction between the Reconstruction monuments and this particular memorial. Yes, this one was not built by the Southerners to throw a middle finger at the North. It wasn't built by neo-Confederates to try and intimidate local populations. It was allowed by the president of the United States to be put on a federal piece of land to pull the after after a period of reconciliation to pull the nation back together and to memorialize those people who 
you know, a lot of the, as, as we, we well know, a lot of those people who died in the Civil War on both sides, you know, never knew a man who owned another. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't, they were, they didn't have anything. Although they may these have people supported died. it, but right. Yeah, they might have supported it, but these people died, uh, you know, a lot of them without their shoes on, mm-hmm. hungry. This is, uh, and that's what this, this memorial is to the future of the country and the country that's been reunited. So for the Pentagon to just go in there and tear it down. Uh, would be disastrous. So explain more about what's happening on that front. What is the Pentagon? How does this process get set in motion? So the Pentagon was given by Congress uh, in 2020 the right to review and rename Confederate bases. You've seen that with some of the bases in the South that have been renamed from Confederate generals. Uh, You'll see that in street names and bases, et cetera. Um, And they've decided in their review that this memorial in Arlington Almost essentially a gravestone falls under that mm-hmm. that purview. Okay, that is contested. There's a group called Defend Arlington, um, which is suing right now. Uh, the The meetings that are held by the the the, the, the Arlington Cemetery has as its own board of advisors. And then notice that's not a governing board, but a board mm-hmm. of advisors, mostly military people, who when questioned on when when they ask questions about this matter, were told by the officer who's just supposed to be there to officiate that there was no further discussion decision had been made mm-hmm. uh, witnesses were not allowed to speak <clears throat> at the hearing uh, the, the fake hearing that was put on but the, th- the funny thing is and here's where I'm hopeful aside from the lawsuit the Pentagon has a history of thinking that it can do whatever it wants because you know when you're an officer and you're in charge of your men you, you kind of kind of can you just tell people what to do and when that intersects with civilian rule sometimes they get a little ahead of themselves they're not used to being told no i mean mm-hmm. it's like that officer telling the board of advisors this decision has been made you know how dare you question a superior officer uh the problem is there's a, actually a congressionally approved board the u.s commission on fine arts that has final say over all federal civic architecture and including including any changes to arlington cemetery i think it was a year or two ago the military for example went to uh, started just moving the paths around John F. Kennedy's eternal flame. Mm. They just decided to, some guy at the Army Corps of Engineers, which you'll notice is decidedly not the Army Corps of Architects. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> seen a military building built in the last like six years. Take a look at the Pentagon. <laughs> they don't put a lot of stock in beauty, which is very unfortunate. Uh, old military buildings are different. But they just started moving them. <laughs> and they got they got slapped pretty hard on the hand, respectfully. But the U.S. Commission on Fine Arts is like, what are you doing? Mm. This is a bad plan. Uh, you don't have the right to do it. But he- here's the deal. We see the problem that you have with these walkways. Understand it. So why don't you come back with a good plan? And then we'll approve it. Mm. Uh, the Pentagon, well, ha- it has reached out and talked to the commission. It is not This issue has not come before it. So there are some commissioners who are keenly interested in this. Now, it's still Joe Biden's commission on fine arts they're not there might not be uh they might they may not be moved to care but it is a place that could slow this down uh and potentially stop it the pentagon just got ahead of itself i mean in early january it issued a press release saying that it had already come down (laughs) wait so they falsely issued a press release yeah so people in a panic called them and it turned out they hadn't how does that happen 
because um, they were in such a rush. They were, it was at the same time, they'd made the decision at the same time as they were renaming bases and street names. Mm-hmm. And all of that happened. Okay. But the statue hadn't come down yet. So what what do they plan? Let's say their plan goes through. What do they plan to do with the memorial? Are they moving it to some sort of museum wow. yeah, or a well, warehouse? <laughs> that's always what they say, right? Yeah. These things belong in a museum. <laughs> Call me if you find the museum. <laughs> where, where are all those stunning pieces? I mean, uh, fine. I understand maybe your city has changed. You no longer want a massive equestrian statue of Robert E. Lee on your yeah. main drag. Well, that's, that's what it been. is. Stunning piece of art. <laughs> and, and so everyone's always like, well, obviously not going to destroy that because we're not the Taliban. We're going to put it in a museum. And I'm like, okay, where is this museum? Is it like Statuary Park in the Soviet Union? Is it just this place where they get destroyed? You must start taking care of your liver now more than ever. Why? Well, because the latest data from the American Heart Association indicates that adults with fatty liver were 3.5 times more likely to have heart failure than those without. The American Liver Foundation says that 100 million Americans have fatty liver, which means many people are at risk. We throw everything at our livers, cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, Tylenol, statins, cigarettes. That's why so many of us have a sluggish fatty liver that makes us gain weight and lose energy. For decades now, your liver helped you with over 500 key functions every day. It's time you help your liver. There is a solution, Liver Health Formula, an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. Manufactured right here in the USA and approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you'll receive a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy. You're also getting four free ebooks to support every aspect of your health. Try Liver Health Formula by going to getliverhelp.com slash federalist and claim your five free bonus gifts. That's getliverhelp.com slash federalist. Our listeners may disagree with me, but those statues on, uh, what is it called, Monument Drive in Richmond, the yeah. first time I saw those, uh, I mean, I was basically offended. <laughs> I was like, these are towering over the city. I can't imagine uh, being a, a black resident of Richmond, and I'm sure, you know, there's there there are lessons, uh, but it just seems so wrong. Yeah, the Federalists wrote a, a piece, actually by a U.S. Commission of Fine Arts member, James McCurry, in defense of taking down those statues. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, he was like, you, you lost the war. These are victory statues. Exactly. You don't you don't get to do that. Right. Um, it's, it is a real pity, though, that we we have a society now that doesn't create beautiful art the way it used to. It doesn't value it. We, can, we can't even maintain the art that we have. There are some incredible sculptures out there, uh, some in the D.C. area. One, uh, the Common Sense Society to set up a, a, a studio where he's actually doing in Virginia doing you can sign up for lessons on sculpture and art, which is really cool to have ne- next to my office. Lucky um, you. Well, I was yeah. really struck. I was in um, San Juan, which is one of my favorite cities in the world recently, at one of the forts, El Moro, um, which is basically right in the city. And this is 16th century Spanish architecture, Spanish military architecture. Um, and <coughs> there's ornamentation, right? Like imagine the the level of labor now. It's slave labor. It's, you know, it's, it's not good labor, um, but they put tons of resources and labor into building this. It's not in the 16th century an easy thing to build this like giant fortress. 
and there's still ornamentation on it. And that's really striking when you look at, for instance, the Pentagon, which isn't a fort. But if you look at modern American military architecture where the resources are... It's modern so, art in general. is a the, joke. It's yeah, a of course. Joke. Yeah. They're all trying to uh, copy and they're just completely derivative of mid-20th century works that were middle fingers to the art community and middle fingers to the critics. And the, these new students are so thick... So, so 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 dumb that they're convinced of their intelligence and they just copy it. I mean, if you ever go, I'm, I'm going. I get uh, going to the friends to London tonight. But if you go down to right in front of the museum, there's uh, Trafalgar You're going Square to, to London tonight. I am. <laughs> uh, I'm also planning a wedding. So this is causing a lot of trouble at home. <laughs> this trip is causing a lot yeah. of trouble. <laughs> but if you go to Trafalgar Square, there's uh, Nelson's Column right in the center. Stunning piece of work. It's surrounded by gorgeous buildings and there are these platforms where modern artists are allowed to install temporary installations the first time i went there was uh, i guess the artist um was a quadriplegic who who worked with her teeth and she put a sculpture of herself naked and pregnant mm. giant no-legged no-armed pregnant naked woman and and she installed it in trafalgar square and i remember thinking Okay, fine. Like maybe like you're at home and you're like smoking weed and like your friends are over and like they convince you this is really good. This is like a good piece of art. But then you put it here like next to a really good sculpture and you don't look around and say, why is mine different from the other pieces? Like this like, doesn't even dawn on you. Well, no, I think they realize it's different. They just think that difference is uh, tantamount to superiority. <laughs> I mean, all of that, all that is to say... I don't know how we got here. I'd be more okay with taking down these statues if we put beautiful things in their place, but we won't. (laughs) If you drive through Richmond today, it is scarred. It is, it is, it is riot fencing surrounding these, these green areas. And, uh, there's not even, I think the empty pedestals anymore. And that is too bad because, well, I think you're right. That stuff had to come down very, very different from the Memorial in Arlington. Um, a society, it's easy to tear things down. It's a lot harder to build things, and we don't even seem interested well, in building things. So this is actually why your piece is a great, I think, dive into America's reckoning with 2020. Uh, because as you mentioned, this entire review process comes out of that very frenzied year. And here we are now trying to rebuild from the ashes of 2020, the cultural ashes of 2020, in some cases, in some cities. I feel like race relations are better, aren't they? It feels so good. It feels so good. <laughs> Crime is down. Race relations are improved. I'm just glad that all those all those white girls put the black square on their Instagram feed <laughs> and solved racism. World. Yeah. So there, I, there was a really striking poll someone posted the other day. It was the trends. I think it was Gallup um, of Americans, white and black Americans' perceptions of race relations over the course of like the last 20 years, and it's striking the way that our perceptions of race relations start to dip very recently. Um, There was a time maybe like 10 or so years ago, probably more than 10 years ago, where black Americans actually had a higher satisfaction with race relations in America than white Americans. It was a brief period. Um, But you can see that line, you know, starting with the last couple of decades, starting to go down. Everyone thinks that race relations are getting better. uh, And then it starts to creep back up again. And it's, I think, obviously one of the biggest problems we're facing right now. But your story- grievance ideology you're you're 
although that that grievance ideology was building in the culture for the last couple of decades, it's just that it's sort of been unleashed mm-hmm. and mainstreamed, and uh, people are there's a lot of obviously groupthink that is congealing um, into those poll numbers. I think, but your story is so interesting because it's an example of our inability or our struggle to rebuild. So to your point, it's easy to tear things down. It's very difficult for contemporary America with our lack of cultural consensus to rebuild. There are times in the past where the cultural consensus has been bad and people were building things off of a bad cultural consensus. There's no question about that. But we can't come to any kind of consensus right now. Um, There isn't a good one. There isn't a bad one. It's just a mix and a muddle. And that's where I think this debate um, is a useful illustration of that. I wanted to ask you about Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is the president that dedicates this memorial, right? Mm-hmm. And Woodrow Wilson is somebody, a Virginian, um, somebody who's an abject racist, basically, um, devout Christian, but abject racist, who segregates D.C. and is at this dedication. And is he the president that um, he delivers a speech, right? Yeah, but he, he did not uh, dedicate the area or approve the okay. memorial. He That's was just president okay. later when the memorial um he gives a, does he give a speech there that's like an anniversary of the he gives some sort of important speech at the memorial right? I haven't read it okay but I will now I'll look it up while you talk yeah Woodrow Wilson I'm not a fan of him and he's not exactly someone who's he's certainly not someone who stands for a reconciliation in this country he uh, showed birth of a nation at the White House mm-hmm. uh, he was there when during the largest Ku Klux Klan rally in American history went through the streets of Washington D.C was a pro-segregationist, an ardent progressive, a massive builder of bureaucracy. Uh, not a great guy. Um, so he gave the, uh, the he, he gave the speech at the unveiling on June 4th, 1914. Uh, the speech is entitled, quote, Closing a Chapter, which is uh, sort of eerie to look back at more than 100 years later. Closing a chapter. And it's, inter- it's interesting. Uh, World War One, this is right, right around the same time, was... A kind of a period of time when the North realized just how devastated the South was. Like after the Civil War, there was the regions kind of went their own ways, <laughs> did their own thing. You to track the history of the North and the South commercially, educationally. At that time, uh, it's like two different countries almost. And the North, the North really only started to pay attention to that problem during World War One, when the incredible amount of men and from the South who were in, who were not approved for military service. They had goiters from, I think it's lack of sodium, this deformity that grows up the side of your neck, massive thing. And they could not button military uniform collars around otherwise healthy men or seemingly healthy men from the South. And that's when the Pentagon realized, holy smokes, it's a national security threat, what's going on in the South right now, how unhealthy the people are, how how behind they are. And that was... um, I think it was pretty largely finished with World War II, but that was it was just at the beginning of the path of the country kind of coming back together. There was that, you know, birth of a nation cosplayer, Ku Klux Klan reiteration that was mm-hmm. reborn around the same time uh, to terrorize mainly Catholics and immigrants, but also, uh, of course, black people. Uh, it was a fractious time and certainly not a perfect time in the country. Uh, but one which people were making strides towards. I mean, I think the early Peace Brigade that left Atlanta, uh, which was Civil War veterans who went around on a, on a 
North and South reuniting tour. <laughs> we're, uni- we're trying to unite people. Like, all right, I know we fought each other during the Civil War, but like, we both don't want to be ruled by blacks and immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was kind of that was what motivated them, and a lot of people in the North were like, yeah, totally agree with that. So this is this is it's a complicated history, which is why it's just, it's a complicated memorial built by a complicated man for a complicated country. And just like you pointed out, things haven't gotten any easier. Mm-hmm. In, in 2020, when when George Floyd died, the was killed, the people were, across this country were told, this is you. You did this. You bear responsibility. You are the systems. White people still are. They're kneeling in the streets and sobbing and begging forgiveness for crimes they didn't commit. Like this religious fervor that demanded very simplistic solutions to very complicated problems. Mm. You know, feel better, take a course, get screamed at, kneel in the street, yell at a police officer, tear down a statue. Cool. Is the population, is the black population of D.C. better off after those riots? Absolutely not. Right. Uh, I got. I just got a text to pray for a friend, uh, Bill, Bill McMorris, one of his friends. Her son, was, her eldest son of five, was shot to death in D.C. last night. Oh, my God. The, this is not... This is not a better place to be. It's a more dangerous, uglier place. It's, it's true across the entire country. And uh, so we, this, there was a demand for simplistic solutions to a complicated problem. And the military is still going ahead with this when there are honest conversations that ought to be had around this. Like, it, well, like the one that we're having, I was, that's what I was thinking about. I've learned just from this conversation a lot and sort of thought through from this conversation a lot. And here I am quoting the worst president, uh, arguably in American history. He says, now it has fallen to my lot to accept in the name of the great government, which I am privileged for the time to represent this emblem of a reunited people. I'm not so much happy as proud to participate in this capacity on such an occasion, proud that I should represent such a people. And this is a key Woodrow Wilson quote, he says, am I mistaken, ladies and gentlemen, in supposing that nothing of the sort could have occurred in anything but a democracy? Now, um, let me skip to the end of his speech at the unveiling. He says, men came and sat together again in the Congress and united all the efforts of peace and government. And our solemn duty is to see that each one of us in his own consciousness and in his own conduct, a replica of this great united people. It is our duty and our privilege to be like the country we represent and speaking no word of malice, no word of criticism, even stand shoulder to shoulder to lift the burdens of mankind in the future and show the paths of freedom to all the world. Show the paths of freedom to all the world. Incredibly rich coming from Woodrow Wilson, who again was actively a a segregationist on the federal level, actively saying it is our duty to show the path of freedom for all mankind. And I like that quote, actually, because it shows that uh, the, the flawed fathers of the American project paved the way for yeah, a, human. a better government. They, they paved a way for a government that eventually came to, to legally respect um, and legally recognize the dignity of all people. And I just, I mean, clearly nothing like this has ever happened in the course of American history, in the course of world history on this scale. And that statue is part of the story. Yeah, and while he was dedicating that statue, he was preparing to send black men to fight in Europe, to liberate Europe and die for the American cause uh, and not be buried in Arlington Cemetery. Exactly. Uh, But there is something in that that's really also worth talking to, how incredible it was that we got through the Civil War at all. Mm. The fact that when it was done, the South sent senators and congressmen back to D.C. to sit down and to talk things over. There was reconstruction. There was violence. There was uh, it wasn't perfect, but the country was able to get through that. And that's 
it took a long time. It took some healing, but it's most most countries don't have revolutions that are successful. We had a revolution that was successful. We wrote a self-governing doc, uh, document that you know worked pretty well for about two hundred years. We uh, I don't know how much it is right now. Well, that's bleak. Yeah. Well, um, we 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 survived a civil war that Lincoln predicted just just a few just just a generation after the last of the revolution had died off. Right. A hundred years later. Um, that's the last veterans and, and some people who'd, who'd fought passed away. Just when the people who even knew those who had fought were beginning to pass away, we re- we renewed it. Uh, and then almost 80 years later, we came back together as a country in World War II and then the 60s. And we started to really actually start to live up to that dream. This is this is a country that just like all human countries and people in human history has flaws, but it was the genius of that system that allowed those flaws to be overcome. The Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski. Every day, Chris helps unpack the connection between politics and the economy and how it affects your wallet. It's time to embrace the suck. Continually worrying about your investments dipping while the market remains extremely volatile? Pay attention to the companies where your money is located. Is it time to reevaluate your financial decisions or just continue to embrace the suck? Whether it's happening in D.C. or down on Wall Street, it's affecting you financially. Be informed. Check out the Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And in the same way you say right now that the Constitution is being tested, that perhaps uh, it's an ability. It's right, like, right. A, like reading the Constitution on the House floor is like a reenactment. <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's a dead document. Well, my point was going to be that you could have said and not people, completely, people but, were saying the same thing, um, not just in 1812, but during the Civil War, during all of these trying periods in American history, during the Civil Rights Movement, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we are here today. We still have a peaceful and prosperous on the whole uh, relative to the scope of human history. Uh, we, we still have a peaceful and prosperous country for the most part, although that feels, I understand, shaky and there's a lot of anxiety in the country. Um, that, that does endure. And the question of whether it endures much longer when we start to uh, be incapable of like patriotism is basically appreciating uh, the country, then we're getting into, as you say, I think an even more significant test, even if we aren't seeing, you know, like you said, 2% of the country dying in a civil war, um, that the, the bloodless kind of revolution that we we might be in the early days of um, could could be more detrimental it's to schism. the Constitution, or, or it could be another great period. This is a very optimistic take that it's hard to feel on a day-to-day basis, or it could be a period of, of great rebuilding and, and coping with the, the kind of yeah. high-tech modernity that uh, we've been thrust into. I want to be a part of it. Uh, Marion Smith, our president of Common Sense Society, said an interesting thing yesterday. I was talking to him about the schism that's taking place right now in the Catholic Church under the surface. And he said, well, there's a schism in everything. Everywhere in the world you look in Western civilization, there's schism. Mm. Not just the Catholic Church, not just the Baptist Convention. The American people, the cities and states uh, are breaking apart families. And I thought that was completely true. There's an interesting theory that every few generations you need a serious conflict that tries the people in order to pull it together. And if you don't have that conflict, that outside thing that, that, that pulls people together, then you pull apart mm-hmm. and it becomes more and more difficult to maintain. Uh, we had that, the American revolution, civil war, world war two, 
and almost had it with 9-11, but it didn't come to pass. There was a couple of weeks, but there wasn't the feeling of shared sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that Brunt was born very... Uh, uh, Narrowly. It was, it was narrowly born on the shoulders of the American working and middle mm-hmm. class and completely ignored largely by our political leaders. Right. Not ignored, but not shared by them. George W. Bush famously said to, to be patriotic, go out and shop. <laughs> you know, right. just, um, so we, we almost had it, but we, we don't have that moment. So... I do think that it would take it would take some kind of a serious thing. I mean, COVID could have been it, but instead people turned it into very partisan things. People turned on each other. And we ended up with, instead of something that pulls people together, we're all in this together. We ended up with churches being raided by the police, uh, schools refusing to educate children and neighbors informing on each other. Like the exact opposite. Yep. Like a further point apart. And then... Uh, the, the, the country largely being united in disgust with... Police killings could have been something, but instead that was used to uh, hate white people. Well, yeah. and, it's, and, it's, and, and promote the 1619 Project in public schools around the country. And it's possible that decades from now we look back on the pandemic and we see that it snuffed out the flames of wokeness, that what came out of the pandemic were these like three very trying, four or five very trying years. But ultimately, our institutions reverted largely to that, that question of neutrality or to that theory uh, or that, let's say, that ambition of neutrality, which is not always recognized. Um, and surely, if we're looking back decades from now with that conclusion, we'll be facing different problems we can't even anticipate. But it's possible. I'm just pessimistic. And maybe you are, too. Yeah, I'm very pessimistic. I mean, how many people know anything about George Washington students these days, know anything about Washington Jefferson, aside from that they're slave owners? Mm-hmm. Did they know that these were two of the most brilliant and selfless men in human history who helped carve the, uh, create the create the document and fought for it, later fought for it in the, in the government that ended up ending slavery? <laughs> like they, they don't know that stuff. So we're, we're teaching them bad history. Just like uh, and when this monument was dedicated, people saw a whitewashed version of history. People right. had a romanticized view. Uh, we now have the exact opposite of that. It's a, it's a view that pits people against each other, that creates grievance structures, that that tells people that fiction is fact. And it feeds all of this. It feeds all of this to us on addictive platforms. And that's again, that's that's not just a new frontier for America. It's a new frontier for for humanity. And so it creates new problems, obviously, for the modern mass regulation of tech needs to come. Well, TikTok uh, actually just this week announced that all uh, accounts for people under the age of 18 will be limited to an hour a day. Now, an hour is nothing compared to like the five hours or whatever the average number of time the you know below 18 year old kid spends on TikTok is. Um, but they can bypass that with a passcode. It's obviously hard to verify, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I don't know how powerful that is. It does show, as we've seen, it's another kind of sign of a maybe market-induced vibe shift that's happening in corporate America. They're just desperate because... Yeah, what about uh, pornography? These, well, why, why aren't there the safeguards on pornography that there are on liquor store purchase on, on the buying alcohol? Do you, I mean, the amount of even adult people who would not use pornography on the internet if they had to input their identification or their credit card numbers. It's like mm-hmm. massive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other people who would just stop it. Um, but we, we as a society have gotten to gone beyond libertarianism to kind of libertinism where James Polos uh, said this mm-hmm. t- to me yesterday. I don't know if we as a society are even comfortable with pro- prohibiting anything. Yeah. No where, like, the idea of prohibition seems so not cool, man. Except for racism. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You know, uh, 
but, I'm but not, too real, many not here. just real race, racism, but anything that can possibly defi- be defined as as treating, uh, let's say, with sexism, yeah. a man and a woman differently. I was complaining to uh, my fiance about how that one of my favorite Tocqueville quotes, which is how America is at once the most free and least free place he's ever been in his life. Because <laughs> there are like basically no laws, but if you wear the wrong hat, they'll drive you out of town. Because <laughs> it's just so puritanical. And I was like, I miss that. Because now we don't have, we like there's no slut shaming, there's no fat shaming, there's no there's no child molester shaming allowed. Um, but, but then again, you can be Dave Chappelle and get millions and millions of dollars from Netflix and reach millions of people because you're super popular by doing that stuff. Yeah. But it's, it's, I was like, I was missing it. Because when you don't have shame, you, have, you end up having to create laws. When, when things aren't exactly. policed by societal norms, they have to be policed by, by, uh, by the state. That's the John it's, Adams quote, you, right? Like you cannot have – our constitution is made for moral people because you need to have social customs. Which is why it's not going to work anymore. There's nothing wrong with no, the constitution. Right, right, right. But Sarah pointed out – she's like, no, we still have that shame. We still have that puritanical system of shame. It's just for a different cause now. Yeah, yeah. It's the woke. Right. And that, that system of you will be driven from society for wrong think is still strong in this country. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. It's just But there's no coherence ugly. to it. There's no, there's no coherence <laughs> to that ideology. It's totally nihilistic post-truth and, and has no logical construction. I mean, at its core is that men are women and women are men. So kind of explains itself. Yeah, it, I guess it does. I guess it does. Christopher Bedford. Where can people read your piece of the New Criterion? Uh, they can find it online at the New Criterion, and it'll be coming out. It's coming out in the March print issue as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, Christopher Bedford, executive editor of the Common Sense Society. We always appreciate it. Great to be here. You're listening to the Federalist Review Hour. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.